0: If you would, please, would you return in your Bibles once again to Matthew 28, Matthew 28, verse 1, and do watch the children upstairs, we do want to be cautious, Matthew 28, verse 1. We come today to the most important event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything we believe in and everything we hope for depends on it. The supreme importance of the resurrection is made clear by the Apostle Paul. As he writes a surprising statement to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Hmm. That is a surprising statement from Paul, but it is perfectly reasonable it emphasizes how vitally important the resurrection is. Everything we believe in and everything we hope for depends on it. But we know that our faith is not in vain because in the Gospels we are presented with the facts of his resurrection that Jesus Christ is risen, just as he said. The reason the resurrection is so vitally important is because it is the confirmation of who he is and it is the guarantee of all he promised. And speaking of promises, because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we can count on that great promise that occurs in John 3.16 that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. By Christ's resurrection, that is guaranteed, it is assured, that God will also raise up all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pick up our text at Matthew 28, verse 1. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. This next section begins with an important timestamp: The Sabbath has passed, and the first day of the week is beginning to dawn. In other words, Saturday... The Sabbath day has passed and the sun is rising on the day that we refer to as Easter Sunday. As the sun is rising and this new day is beginning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary have come to see the tomb. We met these two women at Golgotha on the hill where Jesus was crucified. And when we met them, we learned they are the followers of Jesus. Meaning, they too, along with the eleven, are disciples of Jesus. But unlike the men, who are currently in hiding, these women followed Jesus to the cross when they brought him there to be crucified. Although we were told by Matthew, the women looked on from afar. But at the same time, they were close enough to witness all that happened. After Jesus breathed his last, Joseph of Arimathea gained permission to bury the body. And these women watched Joseph and Nicodemus Presumably with a large number of servants, they watched them take down the body and bring it to Joseph's new and unused tomb. At 27, verse 61, it was then reported, and Mary Magdalene was there with the other Mary, sitting opposite the tomb. From there, they witnessed These two men, Nicodemus and Joseph, also disciples of Jesus, but secretly, they watched them as they prepared the body for burial by anointing it with spices. Now, as the sun is rising on the third day, what we call Sunday morning, the two Marys return to the tomb. We know from the other gospel accounts that these were not the only women who went to the tomb. Mark speaks of these two plus Salome. She's the mother of the disciples, James and John. Luke adds Joanna and also speaks of others with them. But Matthew chooses to focus on these two Marys Probably because it allows us to see a clear connection between three crucial events, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew probably focuses on these two Marys to demonstrate that they were eyewitnesses to all three events. So, that might, uh, we're told that they have come to see the tomb, right? Matthew says they, these two Marys, have come to see the tomb. Now that might strike us as odd, because if you are familiar with Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that the women set out for the tomb carrying spices, which they would use to further anoint the body. Now allow me to remind you the purpose of these anointing spices. They were used to mask the smell of a decomposing body. The reason is the body was placed in a tomb. It was covered in spices to mask the smell because over the course of three years, the body would decompose. And at the end of those three years, the tomb would be reentered. The bones would be gathered up and put in a bone box called an ossuary. Even though these women knew that Joseph and Nicodemus had already applied the necessary spices, it seems that the women were hoping to add more. But Mark, in his gospel, tells us that as they came, they spoke to one another, women, and they were asking one another, who will roll away the stone for us? Therefore, we will conclude that the women brought spices on the chance that they might be able to add these spices as a token of their devotion, but they had no definite plan to do so because they had no plan for someone to roll away the stone for them. But what they knew they could do and were definitely planning to do is, as Matthew reports... Come to see the tomb. It appears that they came with the expectation of continuing what they had begun on Friday. That was the day of Christ's death and burial. On Friday, while Jesus was being buried, the two Marys sat opposite the tomb. And what did they do there? They watched. Now... The Sabbath has passed, and the women come back again to see the tomb. Why? Well, part of the reason might be explained by the Jewish custom of sitting Shiva. Have you heard of that, sitting Shiva? Today, after a burial, Jewish mourners return home to sit Shiva for seven days. The word shiva is the Hebrew word for seven. And sitting shiva is meant to be a period, a seven-day period of grief and remembrance. And so as these women go to see the tomb, they are likely going there to sit and grieve as they lament the death of their beloved Jesus. As the women go to the tomb, let's connect this scene with a scene that we examined last week. In the previous passage, a delegation of chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate with a request. They want a guard posted at the grave because they suspect that the disciples will try to pull off an elaborate hoax. They explained that this Jesus, who they referred to as, remember, that deceiver. They said that deceiver predicted he would rise on the third day. And so they explained to Pilate they wanted to prevent the disciples from coming in the night, stealing the body, and then telling the people he has risen. Pilate realized that 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 kind of deception could lead to social unrest and therefore he sends a company of his soldiers to guard that tomb to make sure that no one comes no one comes out and no one goes in it's sealed as the followers of Jesus are falsely accused of plotting a hoax it makes this detail about the women going to the tomb that much more important. You see, the presence of these women and their crucial role as witnesses counteracts the suggestion that the resurrection is a fictional story concocted or invented by the disciples. Here's why. As Matthew and the other gospel writers report the crucial role played by these women That's completely unexpected, that these women would have such an important role. The reason their key role is unexpected is because in this culture of first century Israel, women were not regarded as credible witnesses. Women were typically prohibited from testifying in a court of law. And so in this passage, as the women go to see the empty tomb and will ultimately end up seeing the resurrected Christ and will serve as witnesses of the resurrection, that's a surprising development. Part of the reason this is so surprising is because, as the commentator Richard France writes, it diminishes the male disciples, meaning the 11. Think of it this way. If the resurrection were a scheme concocted by the disciples no first century author such as Matthew who himself was a disciple no first century author would try to persuade his readers try to persuade his readers that this is a true story by featuring women as heroes while at the same time The august 11 male disciples are now cowering in fear behind locked doors. That's not a first century story. It's not even a good story today. How many times have you seen a movie when there's some kind of crisis and the people are fleeing and the woman trips on her high heels and has to be picked up by a man, right? Even today there's that bias, right? Right? Women can't be heroes. Men are heroes. And so the fact that here, women are heroes, that they are the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, is the kind of detail that argues for the historical accuracy and the reliability of this account. Let's go, please, to verse 2. And behold, I love that word, and behold, there was a great earthquake, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat on it. Matthew begins this verse with that important word, behold. Matthew uses that word when something surprising and unexpected is about to happen. He says, behold, there was a great earthquake. Let me just quickly say Not an ordinary earthquake, a great earthquake, literally a mega-seismos, a mega-quake. There was, behold, there was a great earthquake. Now, earthquakes were not unexpected in this part of the world. A major fault line runs along the border between Israel and Jordan. And so there are commonly quakes then and now in this area of the world. And by the way, that Greek word, as I just pointed out, that Greek word for earthquake, it's the word seismos. It's where we get our English word seismology, the study of earthquakes. Earthquakes were not unusual in this area of the world, but what was unusual was the timing of this earthquake. And as we examine the timing, it becomes clear that this earthquake is not the result of natural causes. It's not the result of a fault line. It is the result of supernatural causes. Behold, there was a great earthquake for, meaning because, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. As this angel moves from the heavenly realm into our physical realm, it is accompanied by a great earthquake, a mega-seismos. As this angel arrives at the tomb, a quick clarification. Luke, in his account, speaks of a second angel. John speaks of two men But it becomes clear from the context that these two men are angels. But Matthew and Mark focus on one, likely because this angel speaks for both. We'll hear him deliver his message in a moment. But first, let's notice that the angel who descended from heaven did two things. First, he came and rolled back the stone and second he sat on it as the angels as the angel rolls back the stone let's make an important observation as we know these stones were enormously heavy Even though they were shaped as disks, they are enormously heavy. And remember, this disk probably had to be rolled uphill on a ramp that was constructed there. It is enormously heavy, and therefore it needed a team of men to move it. But this angel, after arriving with a great earthquake, moves the stone himself. The angel moved the stone. And as he does, we are meant to draw an important conclusion. This angelic being is imbued with enormous power. The second detail is that after he moves the stone, he sits on it. Now, considering all that's going on in the scene and and how important it is, I find it a bit amusing that the angel, after rolling the stone, gets up on top of it and sits there on the stone. I find that kind of amusing. Now, the commentator, Grant Osborne, may help us to understand the significance of the angel taking up that position on top of the stone. He explains that the tense of the Greek verb here about his sitting helps to indicate it is done so in a triumphant nature. Meaning, after the angel rolls away the stone... He sits on it triumphantly, right? You can sort of picture it, right? But the victory that's being celebrated, not about the angel rolling the stone. It's about Christ defeating the grave. Amen? He sits on that stone triumphantly because Jesus has defeated the grave. Jesus has won the battle over the last enemy, and the Bible tells us the last enemy is death. Death. He Has defeated it. And so the angel sits on the stone, not to highlight his victory of moving the stone, but to highlight Christ's victory over death. We are about to hear the angel's announcement, but before we do, we are first told about the appearance of this angel as he sits there on that stone. Verse three, look at verse three, please. His countenance, meaning his appearance, was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The detail that his appearance was like lightning is meant to represent power. And as his clothing is described as white as snow, this is meant to represent purity. But I will suggest that because this angel by definition, is a messenger of God, these characteristics of power and purity do not originate with the angel himself. Instead, those characteristics originate with God. What I mean is, as these women and these soldiers observe this angel who appears like lightning, they are seeing a reflection of the power and purity of God. He is reflecting, the angel is reflecting the power and purity of God. If we will go to verse 4, we will see the reaction of the guards. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Fear is always the reaction when angels appear in their glorified state. When human beings see angels in their glorified state, the first reaction is fear. It's not like that old show, the Touched by an Angel, right? All misty and... No. When human beings encounter an angel, the first reaction is fear. Fear. Hmm. And the reason for the fear of the guards is obvious, but I'll make it explicit these guards, these guards, and the women, these guards are suddenly confronted by supernatural power. Now, here's a question Have you ever been outside during a lightning storm? Yeah. Say you're, you're in a field somewhere. Have you been outside in a lightning storm when you're in a field and there's no shelter nearby? I have. And here's how it goes. The skies suddenly turn black in a real hurry, right? Because there's an ominous wind blowing these clouds, these storm cells in. And suddenly in the darkness, a lightning bolt comes blasting out of the sky and it's accompanied by this, this rumble, of this explosion of thunder. Now, when you are watching a lightning storm from a distance... That's beautiful to behold, right? When you're in the comfort of your home, although it can be a little unnerving when your house is shaking from from a nearby thunderclap, but if you're in your house and you're watching a a thunderstorm from a distance, that can be beautiful to behold. It's impressive. But when you are next to it, when you are in a storm like that and there is a lightning bolt dancing across the ground coming for you, that is terrifying. And so think of this scene at the tomb. First, oh, did you not know that? Lightning bolts skip, especially across the water. I wish wish Brian were here. If you're out on the water in a lightning storm, that is even scarier than being in the land because on the water, lightning skips like a stone. Have you seen that? (laughs) Oh, wow, that is scary. All right. Think of this this scene at the tomb. First, the angel, you're a navy person. Have you seen lightning shaking, uh, dancing on the, whoa, that's scary. All right, think of the scene at the tomb. First, the earth shakes with a great quake, a mega quake. And as this angel descends, the angel rolls away the stone as if it's a little pebble, right? He sits on the stone, and as he's sitting on the stone, he has the appearance of lightning. He is reflecting God's power, reflecting God's holiness, and in the only way Matthew could describe it, based on what he was told, is that this angel had the appearance of exploding white-hot lightning. Is it any wonder that these men shook for fear? You know, sometimes we read the, the scripture and we're so accustomed to it that we don't really understand what's going on here. Behold, there's a giant quake. and An angel comes and he looks like lightning, explosive, thunderous, white-hot lightning. Oh, they're afraid. They're very afraid. That word, where they're shaking with fear, it's a a form of the word seismos. Before the earth was quaking because of the power of the angel's appearance, now the soldiers are quaking in fear. Now what is more significant is the second detail about the guards. They become like dead men. Now some commentators suggest this pictures the soldiers fainting in fear, such that they fall to the ground, they fainted, they're now unconscious, they're like dead men. That is possible. But I prefer the view of those who suggest that these soldiers remain conscious, but became like dead men in the sense that they are paralyzed with fear. We have the word petrified, right? You're so frightened, you're petrified, you're like stone. Now, They look like dead men. They may have fallen to the ground, and they're paralyzed in fear. But I believe they remain conscious. And the reason I say that is because I believe that God would want these men to hear the message that is now delivered by the angel. Look, please, at verse 5. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Even though the women didn't ask any question, we're told the angel answered it. Now, we wouldn't expect these women to speak. They're too afraid to say anything. But despite their fear, they had to be thinking, even in their fear, what does all this mean? What's going on? Who, what's happened to our beloved Jesus? And so the angel answers their unasked questions. The angel begins by doing what angels always do. What do angels always do? Well, for, And this is only for the faithful. The angel begins by seeking to alleviate their fear. He doesn't do that for the unfaithful. Angels don't do that for the unfaithful. But for the faithful, the angels always seek to alleviate their fear fear. And that's why he says very directly, do not be afraid. Now, Of course, we humans, we cannot shut off our fear as if we are flipping a light switch. If I tell you, don't be afraid, that's not going to have much effect, is it? And so these women will continue to be afraid. But as things develop, They will leave this place, the women, with a strange combination, as it says in verse 8, with fear and great joy. The second thing this angel does, as angels do, is deliver God's message. Remember, this message doesn't come from the angel, it comes from God. And when angels deliver God's message, he will direct these women to the truth. And it is important for us to know and to always remember, listen, the truth will always be found in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth will always be found when we seek Jesus. Let's go back to the first action of the angel. He says, do not be afraid. He's seeking to alleviate their fears. I would like to give you an alternative translation of that statement. I will suggest to you this could also be translated as, don't you be afraid, with the emphasis on you. Don't you be afraid. Let's pay close attention to whom the angel is speaking. The beginning of the verse says very specifically and very clearly that he's speaking to the women. Matthew says, the the angel answered and said to the women. He's not speaking to the guards, the angel. He's not speaking to the guards. He's not speaking to any possible religious leaders who might be there. He's speaking to the women. And so this could be translated as, don't you be afraid. And the angel will explain why they do not need to be afraid in a moment. But we already know the answer. Those who seek Jesus do not need to be afraid because he is risen. But as the angel tells the women, you don't need to be afraid, it infers that these paralyzed men do need to be afraid, and very afraid. One reason they might be afraid is that they know that their lives are in jeopardy, not from the angel, but from Pilate. These soldiers were charged with protecting the tomb, but now that the tomb is empty and they have failed at their duty, they are likely to pay for their failure with their lives, and that paves the way for a true plot that will be hatched later, which we will see God willing. But this failure of the soldiers and the danger they face from Pilate, that's of little interest to the angel. The key reason these men ought to be very afraid is because they're not seeking Christ. Any person who is not seeking Christ can be described with a single word, lost. And to be lost spiritually is a very dangerous and deadly place to be. Tragically, those who are lost, who are without Christ, are destined for eternal punishment. But that does not need to be the case for these men or for anyone who is without Christ. You see, the alternative to being lost is to be found. And how do we do that? By seeking after Christ. The Bible says, and Randy spoke it earlier from Jeremiah, those who seek him will find him. When we seek him with our hearts, we will find him. After the angel tells the women not to be afraid, he goes on to say this, for I know that you, they're the seekers, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. These are words of assurance. But these words are also a gentle rebuke. I'm going to give you a new way to look at uh, this verse, I think. These are words of assurance but they're also words of rebuke. They are seeking Jesus, and that is to be commended. And because they seek Jesus, the the angel says, you no longer need to fear. He says, don't be afraid. But at the same time, there is a gentle rebuke here, and that is because as they seek Jesus, they're looking for a Jesus who was crucified. In other words, you have come looking for Jesus because you have come expecting to find a dead, crucified Jesus. Now, the fact that they've come looking for a dead Jesus, about that there can be no dispute. Remember, they came carrying spices to anoint a dead body. You don't give these preservative spices to some, somebody who's alive. You give them to to anoint the dead body. That's why the angel says, I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. As the commentator Michael Wilkins examines this statement, he explains that the angel identifies Jesus from the women's perspective, who are expecting to find Jesus crucified, meaning dead. And so Wilkins offers a paraphrase of this verse. He says the angel's statement could be rendered like this. I know that you seek Jesus, the crucified one. As we know, Jesus came for the purpose of being the crucified one. He came for the purpose of giving his life for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus himself explained, the son of man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to be crucified. And it is the reason Paul declares we preach Christ and him crucified. Why? Because if Christ were not crucified, we would still be in our sins. And therefore, we would be condemned. But don't miss this. If we seek Jesus who was crucified and only him crucified, we are most to be pitied. The reason I say that is because Jesus is not only the crucified one, he is the risen one. Only if we seek Jesus risen do we have the blessed hope that we too will be victorious over the grave and we will be raised from death to life. And so here's the lesson for us here. We need to continually seek him. It is not as if, oh, I found him. I no longer need to seek him. I must, we must continually seek him. Because he lives, all who seek him will find him. We serve a living Lord, a Lord who is alive. He is everywhere present. He is living and active. He is on his throne. He is in this room. He is in your heart, your heart that believes And therefore, we must seek him. He's everywhere present. Doesn't mean that we don't need to seek him. We do need to seek him. Because all who seek him will find him. And those who seek him will be rewarded for their search. How do we seek him? Prayer. Study. Service. Are you seeking him? Let's hear again the angel's words at verse 6. After his words of assurance, which are also a gentle rebuke, he then offers his correction and tells them why they no longer need to fear. Verse 6. He is not here. You've come looking for the crucified one. He's not here. He is the risen one. He is risen as he said. Do you see how that's the good news? Don't go looking for a dead Jesus. He's the risen one. Allow me to draw your attention to the last clause at verse 6, where the angel reminds the women about what Jesus said. Look at the verse last, I'm sorry, look at the last clause in verse 6. The angel says, As he said. The, the angel announces, Jesus is risen, quote, As he said. This presupposes that the women, these disciples, that they were just as aware as the eleven that Jesus foretold that he would rise again, that he would be resurrected. And it is the reason I suggested earlier that the words of the angel were, in a sense, a gentle rebuke because they've come looking for the crucified one even though Jesus told them over and over again that he would defeat the grave, and yet they came looking for the crucified one when they should have been looking for the risen one. Who should we seek? The risen one. We thank the crucified one. We seek the risen one. Jesus told them that he would defeat the grave, and he did. And so the angel declares that Christ's prophecy has been fulfilled. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. As the angel informs the women he is not here, it gives us an important information about the angel's role. Despite some misleading artwork and movie portrayals about this scene, the angel did not roll away the stone To let Jesus out, he rolls away the stone to let the disciples in. First the women, and then later the women will go fetch Peter and John, and they will come running to go inside the tomb also. Now, technically speaking, this passage is not an account of the resurrection. None of the four gospels give us an account of Jesus rising from the grave. Instead, the gospel writers have given us a report of how Christ's disciples found the tomb empty. We're not explicitly told how Jesus exited the grave, but we do have some hints. Later in this chronology, when the eleven disciples, the eleven male disciples, They're still hiding in fear. They're behind closed doors. There are reports from Luke 24 and John 20 that suddenly, while they're in this locked room, suddenly there was Jesus in the midst of them. We are to conclude that the risen Lord, now in his glorified body, is no longer bound by the constraints of the physical world. Meaning, it appears that the glorified Christ can pass through solid objects. But even as we are given these tantalizing clues, that does not mean we should think of Jesus as some kind of ghost. Instead, ample evidence shows that he retained a body that could be touched and held. In fact, that will be demonstrated in the verses to follow that we will examine next week, God willing, when the women grab him by the feet and hold on to him and worship him. He has a glorified body, which you too, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, will have one day. A glorified body, a spiritual body, the Bible says. Somehow, in a way that is not explained, the risen Lord left the tomb before the angel rolled it away, not to lead Jesus out, but to let the disciples in. And it allows the angel to victoriously declare, after he rolls away the stone, look, he's not here. He's risen, just as he said. As we hear these words from the angel, I'd like to offer a bit of a clarification While it is absolutely true that he is risen, a literal translation that more accurately reflects the Greek verb here would offer a slightly different rendering. A literal translation of this verse here would say, he has been raised. He has been raised. What is absolutely true is that he is risen, but it's also literally true that he has been raised. We have here in this alternative translation what theologians call a divine passive, right? Divine passive means God's involved. The one who is acted upon is passive. It's a divine passive, a divine passive describes a work that God does on behalf of another. Now, this might seem a bit confusing because we know that Jesus is God. He's God come in the flesh. But we will simultaneously remember that during his incarnation, Jesus was fully man and fully God. Now, as, a, as someone who was fully man... A dead man cannot raise himself, which makes it all the more apparent why the divine passive is at play here. The dead body of Jesus needed to be acted upon by the power of God. While it is true that Jesus said he had the power to lay down his life and he had the power to take it up again, the teaching of scripture tells us that Jesus was raised by the power of the Father. He didn't raise himself. He was raised by the power of the Father. Paul says this at Romans 6.4. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Peter opens his first letter by saying this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has given us a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this may seem like splitting hairs, merely an academic concern, but it is important. Here's why. The Apostle Paul tells us what God the Father promises to do for all who put their faith in Christ. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. This is what God the Father promises to do for you if you are a believer in Christ. Paul writes, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. God the Father raised Jesus. Paul says he will raise us also if we are believers in Christ. That is why the angels tell the women and us, That they don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. Because God, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, will raise us up also. Is that good news? Yeah. Now, even as I say that, I am aware of this saying from Jesus. This from John chapter 6, verse 40. John chapter 6, verse 40. Jesus says, For my Father's will is that everyone... Who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I, Jesus says, will raise him up on the last day. What? Well, which is it now? Is it the Father or is it Jesus? But that should not confuse us. And this offers no conflict. Here's why. Father and Son are one. And they are perfectly united and together, along with the Holy Spirit, will raise us up on the last day. Let's look finally at the second sentence of verse 6. As the angel extends to the women a gracious invitation, he says, come, come. See the place where the Lord lay, meaning where he used to lay. Come see the empty tomb, the angel says. Now, why does God have the angel extend this invitation to see the empty tomb. Why doesn't the angel say, hey, he's risen, trust me, go on your way. I'm an angel after all, you can can believe me. Why didn't he just say, he's risen, head home. Why does he say, come, come see the empty tomb, come check it out. Well, the reason will soon become clear. This is the first step to assure these and the other disciples that Jesus Christ had in fact, in fact, risen from the dead, just as he said. You see, this is the first of many great evidences of Christ's resurrection. Even though the Bible tells us that we are to walk by faith and not by sight, the Bible tells us, walk by faith, not by sight, Even though we are told that, our God is so good to us. You know why? Over and over again, God gives us the opportunity to see the evidence of his power and his grace. God has given so much evidence of Christ's resurrection that it is the facts of his life and death and resurrection It it is upon those facts that we place our faith. We don't have a blind faith. We have a faith based on facts. As the angel invites the women to come and see for themselves the tomb, and that it is empty, it is the first step in assuring them and us that we no longer need to fear. Come see the empty tomb. Can you look, can you in your minds peek in there and see? No, there's no no body here. He's not the crucified one, he's the risen one. He's risen just as he said. And because he is risen, we can know that we too, by the power of God, have been given victory over the grave. Now there is so much that might have prevented these women from going into the tomb. Fear of the angel. Fear of the soldiers being suddenly awakened. Fear of the unknown. But they do go. They go in the tomb and see he's not here. Just as he said, he's risen. And as they go forward, now seeking not the crucified Christ, but the resurrected Christ, they will be rewarded for doing so. God willing, as we will see next week, when these women leave the tomb, how will they be rewarded? Because they sought Jesus, they will see him. And I want to demonstrate to you next week, it is the same for us. When we seek him, we will see him. Here's the good news. Those who seek him will find him. And that is just as true today as it was on that Easter Sunday morning. We have a risen Lord, a living Lord. And although he is everywhere at once, he is on the throne, he is in this place, he is in your hearts. We still need to seek him. Because all who seek him will find him. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table this morning to celebrate communion, we come grateful that you are the crucified one. But we worship and adore you because we know that you are the risen one, knowing that by your resurrection there is a guarantee that all who believe have eternal life. Amen.